you have a Bible, you can open to the end of Ecclesiastes. We're looking at chapter 12, verses 8 through 13 this morning. That's the last of it. Um, It's also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. Uh, Here we are at the end of our series in Ecclesiastes. It only took 23 weeks. And uh, Brian's probably thinking, it's 23 weeks of my life, I'll never get back. (laughs) Which is exactly what Ecclesiastes would say, actually. Um, uh, (laughs) But that's okay. Ecclesiastes would say, you can't get the past back. You can't hold on to these things. Your time is slipping into the future. Uh, That's okay. It was worth it um, because these were weeks that we were spending together with God and his word. And actually, that's a good summary of this book. It's a good summary, a good overall summary, I think, of life, according to Ecclesiastes. Uh, Life is only worthwhile if it's life with God. Uh, It's only worthwhile if it's life lived in relationship with God, where you treat God as God, when you fear God, uh, and when you listen to him and live accordingly, when you keep his commandments. That's that's the only kind of life worth living. That's a good life. That's a meaningful life, a satisfying life. And that's the kind of wisdom that Ecclesiastes offers us in his book, uh, the wisdom that God is prodding us toward through faith in Jesus. So let's look at the summary of Ecclesiastes uh, together. Uh, Let me pray first, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we want wisdom for life with you. Satisfy our hearts and transform our minds with your word now through the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Vapor of vapors, says the preacher, all is vapor. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The last word, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of being human. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, fear God, keep his commandments. The fear of God is a difficult topic. Uh, we've touched on it a few times uh, through this series in Ecclesiastes, as, uh, as all the wisdom literature really emphasizes the fact that the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the foundation. All of wisdom flows from the fear of God. <clears throat> but it's a, it's a difficult topic for us. We tend to think of fear as a, a negative reaction. It's an unpleasant experience to be afraid of something, right? It's a negative reaction to bad things. So it's It's hard for us to conceive of it as a positive reaction being commended here, uh, a positive reaction to a perfectly good God. As Christians, maybe we think, uh, you know, the fear of God, that's an archaic thing. That's an outdated thing. That's an Old Testament thing, right? That since uh, since Jesus came along and reconciled us to God, there's no longer any need to fear God. Uh, But Peter says it simply, and he says it clearly to the church after Christ Um, his time on earth after his crucifixion and the resurrection, his his ascension, everything. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 
honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. So the summary of wisdom that we find in Ecclesiastes is still good for us today. It's still good for us. Uh, And since it's the summary, let's quickly review where Ecclesiastes has taken us. We're not going to spend too much time on this overview. Uh, But, uh, you know, basically the author, probably Solomon, he's the son of David. He's the king of God's people. He's the preacher. He's the one uh, teaching the church, the congregation, the assembly, the the people who are gathered uh, to hear God's word. He taught the congregation the wisdom that he had gained over a lifetime of exploring everything the world has to offer. We got the whirlwind whirlwind tour of life under the sun, right? Life lived without really considering God. Uh, Life lived without really uh, taking into account the creator and judge of all. Ecclesiastes looked for anything of lasting significance, anything of lasting satisfaction uh, that might make life worthwhile in the world. He came up empty, right? Work, uh, wealth, pleasure, power, philosophy, uh, family, children, legacy, all these things. Anything and everything people turn to for, for meaning, to, to try to find true meaning and true joy in life without regard to God, abstracted out of a relationship with God, all these things in and of themselves, they're hollow. That's what he calls them. They're hollow, they're vain, they're frustrating pursuits. They're vaporous, they don't last. Ultimately, we want something glorious that death won't ruin. That's what we want, that's what we're looking for, that's what Ecclesiastes has been looking for. Something glorious that death won't ruin. But apart from God, there is nothing like that. Apart from God, there's no eternal glory. Once something is disconnected from God, untethered from your relationship with God, then it becomes maddeningly fleeting and futile. Vapor of vapors, says the preacher. All is vapors. So mostly this comes across as bad news, right? You read this book and it's easy for Christians to wonder why this book is in the Bible because it seems kind of depressing, nihilistic. Um, maybe it comes across mostly as bad news because we really we wish we could find something satisfying in this world. Maybe we wish we could find something truly joyful in, in life apart from God. But this is all part of the good news. It's the good wisdom that the Bible has for us. Ecclesiastes says uh, he has come to know this wisdom through his lifelong search. He's come to know this wisdom not just for himself, but in order to teach us this delightful truth, right? This is the way he puts it. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. So maybe he's not just talking about Ecclesiastes. Maybe he's also talking about the proverbs, which are largely Solomon's. Uh, but with great care, right? So the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So we, we do um, maybe encounter wisdom like this, uh, fear God as a negative thing, but it's good for us. We, we need to be goaded toward this kind of wisdom. We need to be prodded toward this kind of wisdom because it's not natural for us to gravitate towards this wisdom that, that life with God is the only life that's truly worth living. And it is difficult for us to hear these wise words of Ecclesiastes because we're like unruly sheep who stray away from the shepherd, who are prone to wander. But it is good for a shepherd to take care of his flock and, and you know, even poking them with a stick to keep them away from danger or to keep them near himself, right? So that's the imagery we have here in verse 11. The words of the wise 
are like goads. There's these sharp sticks, cattle prods or whatever you use on oxen uh, who have thick enough skin they can handle it, but you want them to feel something, right? So they're like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. So, So God is a good shepherd. Jesus calls himself that. He says, I'm the good shepherd, right? Um, he is the good shepherd. God is the good shepherd who has orchestrated this exploration, this journey, like we find in Ecclesiastes. It's a tasting tour where every pleasure sipped is bitter if it's done apart from God. Right? He's the shepherd who has helped us to encounter this bad news so we know how bad life is apart from God. The wise words of Ecclesiastes are pointed And they're sometimes painful, but they're ultimately given by God himself for our good. And you can entrust yourself, and you can entrust your life entirely to this wisdom. The biblical wisdom for life with God is the only wisdom that you can adopt wholesale. Beware of anything else purporting to be wisdom, written in all these other books. And so here it is. Here's the summary of the wisdom that we find in Ecclesiastes. It's the difficult wisdom that will be good for us to accept. The last word, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of being human. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Simple. Fear God and do what he says. Relate to God according to how he has revealed himself. Relate to to God according to how he truly is. Because he's the judge of your whole life. That's all that it means to be human. To fear God and do what he says. So maybe this language isn't familiar to you. There, there are some differences in translation here from the ESV. Uh, the ESV and other uh, translations often translate this as, this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Uh, that word duty isn't there. There's no word there at all. So it's, it's literally in Hebrew, this is the whole of the man. This is the whole of being human. To be fully human means to fear God and keep his commandments. You cannot be fully human. You cannot be truly human if you don't have a relationship with God, if you don't listen to what he says about himself and respond to him on his own terms. So, fear God. It sounds fearful, right? It sounds scary, frightening. Are we supposed to live in just this adrenaline-spiked panic all the time, dreading the divine? That sounds terrible. Is that really what this is promoting? What does it mean to fear God? That's a really important question. What does it mean to fear God? Uh, It's an important question because the Bible frequently promotes the fear of the Lord, and it's really easy to misunderstand it or to be scared of God in a bad way. It's very easy. It's instinctive for us to be scared of God in a bad way. At this point, uh, let me just recommend this great little book by Michael Reeves, called What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? And there are a few copies of it that we just got on our, our book table out there. <clears throat> that, that book is a, a shorter version of another book of Michael Reeves called Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord, uh, which the elders and the deacons we've read over the last several weeks. Uh, Reeves couldn't possibly just write one book on the subject because of the making of many books. There'll be no end. Uh, But here I'm only recommending the shorter one. That's the one we've got at the table. It's really, really pretty easy to get through uh, because much study is a weariness of the flesh. 
That's not the right uh, interpretation of that, that passage, by the way. So. <clears throat> um, <laughs> uh, anyway, as the subtitle of the longer book suggests, the fear of the Lord is a good thing, the surprising good news of the fear of the Lord. It's a blessing. It's a blessing that we should want. Reeves points out that there is a bad fear of God, and there's a good fear of God. And we can see them both, and this, he points this out in uh, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we see them both in the same passage where God gives his law to his people at Mount Sinai. And uh, it's a pretty dramatic experience. It's a pretty terrifying experience for the people. So it says in Exodus 20, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you so that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's a pretty interesting passage. The people instinctively perceived God to be a threat to be avoided. Uh, And they stood far off. And that was the bad fear. And Moses said, do not fear. Don't fear in that way. Right? But God had come so that the fear of him would be before them and be in them, that they would fear God, and that it would cause them not to sin, not to pull away, not to stand apart from God, And Moses exemplified this by drawing near. This was the good fear. The bad fear causes you to flee from God. And the good fear causes you to flee to him. The the bad negative fear is when you believe that God is against you. And it it drives you away from God in self-protection. You think the best way to protect yourself is to protect yourself against God. And that's the sinful fear of God. And God says, don't fear me that way. The good fear, the positive fear, is when you believe actually that God is for you. And it drives you toward God with total abandon. This is the holy fear of God. So Reeves says, unlike that devilish fear that would drive us away from God, this is a fear that keeps us from drawing back or turning away from him. A worshipful and devoted fear, a loving fear that falls down facing, not fleeing God. It's a fear that comes from knowing God. It's a fear that comes from knowing him truly and fully. The bad fear doesn't know God truly or fully. It might imagine the wrong things about God, like he's cruel or he's capricious. You've got to stay away from him, right, that he's not kind. Or it might sort of disintegrate his attributes from one another, like considering his justice apart from his love or considering his sovereignty apart from his mercy. The good fear knows God as he has made himself known. The good fear of God doesn't just cringe or cower at the thought of God's wrath. The good fear of God trembles before his goodness, trembles before his mercy, trembles before his steadfast love. So again, Michael Reeves says it's, The right response, this fear, 
to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all his grace and glory. He is not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly. Seen clearly, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. He is inexpressibly tremendous and fascinating. The living God is so wonderful that he is not truly known where he is not worshipped and heartily adored. He's not truly known if he's not feared. So can you imagine a fear of God's goodness? Sheer goodness. Being afraid of that. Can you imagine a fear that that trusts God, loves you, and wants what is best for you? A fear that drives you toward God rather than away from him. Uh, Michael Reeves This may be the last time I quote him, sorry. Uh, He calls this fear the intense ecstasy of love, a physical experience of being overwhelmed, of weak-kneed trembling, of being staggeringly discomposed, a startlingly physical overpowering reaction. So the fear of the Lord is when you're impressed by him. It's when you're riveted, when you're awestruck and overwhelmed and thrilled and actually utterly undone by who God is, and by by what God does, by his nature as the triune God, the one who is incarnate in Christ, and by his mighty works, his salvation, his judgments. You see, uh, fear is the human reaction, basically to not being in control. Fear is the human reaction to not being in control. The more out of control our lives get, the more we suffer from things like fear and anxiety and worry. That's normal psychological basic stuff, right? Well, nothing's more beyond our control than God. You can't manage him. You can't manipulate him. You cannot tame him. In fact, it's his majestic freedom to love, which is the most overwhelming. So you might ask, uh, what about when John says in 1 John chapter 4, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And doesn't that mean we're not supposed to fear God because of his love? If we understand his love perfectly, then it means we don't fear him at all. Well, remember, the Bible talks about the bad fear, right? The fear that God is against you, that his judgment is a threat to you, that he's going to punish you. And that's what this is saying. Fear has to do with punishment. The bad fear has to do with punishment. God's love casts out the bad fear. And it frees you up for the good fear of God, the fear that, that draws near the overwhelming, trembling thrill of love. The fear of the Lord is perfectly compatible with love for the Lord. I would even say that uh, the fear of God is an aspect of your love for God. In response to the love of God uh, that he has shown you in Christ. If the good fear of God is the right human response to God's true revelation of himself, then we should be able to evoke it by talking about the gospel, by talking about Jesus. Jesus reveals God most truly. Jesus reveals God most wonderfully for our fear. Jesus himself feared God. Remember, he's fully human. And the prophecy that uh, Isaiah foretold in uh, chapter 11, Isaiah 11, verses 2 and 3, says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, 
the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Talking about Jesus. He's fully human. Remember how Ecclesiastes says, this is the whole of being human. This is what it means to be truly human. Well, Jesus is the perfect human. He's the spirit-filled human. He's the one true human in right relationship with God, and he delights in the fear of the Lord. It's good to him. It's a blessing. The elders and deacons uh, were talking about this just the other day. Uh, Everything Jesus ever did on earth was done in the fear of the Lord. He treated God as God, and he submitted himself to God's sovereign will. Usually joyfully, but the big moment, the big moment when you really see this is the night leading up to his crucifixion when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, wrestling all night with his father in prayer, sweating great drops as of blood. You can read about that in Luke 22. Here was true humanity encountering divinity. That's what's happening in the garden. Jesus knew his father's sovereignty. He knew what it was that he was about to face at the cross. He knew that what he was about to face at the cross was the cup given to him by his father. His father was giving it to him. And he prayed that the father would take this cup away, but ultimately he submitted to the father's sovereignty. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prayed that way all night long in the fear of the Lord. Jesus, the perfect human being, feared God and kept his commandments. He's the only one of us who has done this. And his righteous fear of God is counted as our own through faith in him. We don't fear God like we should. It's okay, Jesus Jesus has and does. And a few hours later, after that scene in the garden, Jesus was nailed to timber and he died in darkness, uh, even though it was midday. And that's the perfect revelation of the merciful, gracious love of God. I mean, is that a picture of God that gives you warm fuzzies? Christ dying on the cross? I mean... Only if by fuzzies you mean an electrical jolt that uh, makes you lose control of your bodily functions. Yeah. The cross is the pure, fearful love of God that undoes us, that stupefies us, that unravels us, that causes us to fall down as if dead on our face toward him in worship. And not only the cross, the resurrection. When Mark closes his gospel... He records when the women heard of Jesus' resurrection uh, from the angels at the tomb. And Mark says that uh, trembling and astonishment seized them, for they were afraid. And that's, that's where the Gospel of Mark leaves it with the disciples. They were afraid of the resurrection. In fact, it's perfectly appropriate to fear any instance of the Lord's goodness. We heard in our Gospel reading that uh, Jennifer read when, when Jesus saw the woman in Nain, who was not only a widow but now had lost her only son, her only help in life in this world. And Jesus had compassion on her and said, do not weep. And then he raised her son from the dead and gave him back to her. Right there in the middle of a huge funeral crowd, it says, fear seized them all and they glorified God. Saying a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. It's good for God to visit his people and raise beloved sons from the dead. And it's good to be afraid of that and glorify God for it. To run away screaming in horror would be the wrong response. 
The compassion of Jesus and his power over the grave evokes a good fear that swells up into praise. The fear, this fear of God, the fear of God is an aspect of a love for God. The one who loves God will fear God, and the one who does that will, will obey God. Fear God and keep his commandments. The connection here should be obvious, I think. Uh, if, you, if you treat God as God, actually taking him seriously for who he is, if you're overwhelmed by who he is and you tremble before him, if you love him with a fearful love, then his word becomes your passion. His will becomes your delight. Jesus makes it pretty simple for us when he says in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We hear language like that repeated in the New Testament. <clears throat> it would be no different really for him to say, if you fear me, you'll keep my commandments. There's no difference there. You can't say, I love God and not say, I, I fear God. Those two things go together. And you can't say, I love God or I fear God, and there'll be no impact whatsoever on your life and your relationships. You can't be truly undone by the cross of Christ and not be remade and renewed in the image of Christ. You can't care about God, yet not care about his word, care about his commandments. Do you know his commandments? Well, there's ten of them that are pretty easy to memorize, at least in short form. And, you know, do you know the Ten Commandments? They're found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Go memorize those this week if you don't know them already. Do you know how Jesus talks about the, the two greatest commandments to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself, which is they're, they're alike? Do you know the new commandment that Jesus gave us? He calls it new, to, to love one another just as Jesus has loved us and, and given his life for us. If you know God and fear him, it'll make a difference in your life according to his word. Knowing God and fearing God makes the ultimate difference in your life. To loop back around to where we started, nothing in the world matters if you don't know God. Nothing in the world matters if you don't fear God. So Phil Riken says, uh, if there is no God, then there's no judge. If there's no judge, then there will be no final judgment. And if there's no final judgment... There's no ultimate meaning to life. Nothing matters. But if there is a God who will judge the world, then everything matters. Everything matters. The reality is because the, tr the triune God is the true creator and judge of us all, not only is a life of meaning possible, a life of meaning is inescapable. A life of meaning with this God is inescapable. Whether or not your life has meaning is not a matter for your own judgment. You can't just find your own meaning in life. You can't create your own meaning in life. You can't decide whether there's going to be or what is going to be the meaning of your life and convince yourself that that's true. It's true because God says it's true. It's a matter of God's judgment, not yours. Your life has meaning because it matters to him. And that's, that's what he says. God says your life means something to him. There's no way possible, there's no way imaginable to ascribe greater meaning to your life than that. God says your life means something to him. So Derek Kidner says, nothing goes unnoticed or unassessed, not even the things that we disguise from ourselves, right? Those secret things. If God cares as much as this, nothing can be pointless. Someone who fears God in the bad way hears that as bad news. 
oh no, God is watching everything I do. He's going to judge me for everything I've ever done. That sounds bad. But someone who knows the love of God in Christ, who fears God in this good way, in accordance with God's goodness, he abandons his self-protection. If you fear the Lord in a good way, you abandon your self-protection, you fully entrust yourself to the righteous judgment of God. This one knows already that his sins have died with Jesus on the cross and that his Savior, the one who has loved with a terrifying love, this is, this is our judge. He already knows that he's been utterly undone by the love of Jesus, and he knows that the judgment of Jesus will not run contrary to his love. As if the Jesus who died on the cross and the Jesus who returned to judge some different Jesus. This one cannot imagine anyone better to judge his every deed than Jesus. The one who fears God. And his fear of the Lord Jesus leads him to fall at the feet of his judge rather than to wish that he could escape the judgment of Jesus. This good fear of God is not natural. It's hard for us even to understand it a lot of the time. The bad fear, the kind where you run from God, that's natural. That's instinctive. The good fear of God is a gift. It's a blessing. It's a benefit of redemption that you have in union with Christ. And God has promised this gift to his people. He says in Jeremiah 32, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good, and the good of their children after them. I will make them with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. It's good for God to give us a new heart to fear him. Even though it means our undoing. Right? Even though the words of the wise are like goads coming from this one shepherd. It's because God is a good shepherd to us. He's caring well for our souls that he prods us with these words of difficult wisdom like these of Ecclesiastes. They might be difficult, painful even, but they they anchor our souls in the reality of God, right? They're like nails firmly fixed. Without which we would find ourselves drifting away from God, drifting untethered, without any solid foundation for hope or joy in life, with only the empty terror of meaninglessness. If you want meaning, if you want substance, if you want weighty, glorious, everlasting joy, then you want the gift of, of the fear of God. That's, that's what you want. Uh, there's a funny little line in a Harry Potter movie where Harry's friend Ron uh, receives a gift from his mom. It's a rather ugly vest with a big R on it, R for Ron. And you can tell he's disappointed with the gift. He's trying to hide his disappointment. Uh, it's a gift that he didn't want, really. But his mother smiles and tells him, just what you wanted, actually. And we use that line around our house all the time when we give the kids things that they don't want. Um, but to love someone can mean doing the exactly, exactly the opposite of what they wanted. It can mean that. Think of a child who wants to run out into the street and you stop them. Think of an addict who uh, needs an intervention. Think of anyone making self-destructive choices. Sinners are biblical fools. We're always making self-destructive choices, neglecting the fear of God, desperate to fear anything but God. And so we often experience God's love to us 
as a violation of our self-destructive will. We don't want to fear God, but God knows what's best for us. It might not be the gift you always wanted, but the fear of the Lord is the good gift that the Lord knows you need to live a fully, truly human life in this world in relationship with him through faith in Jesus. And God knows how to give you this gift in the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you're the one who can give us a heart to fear you. And we trust that this is good for us, even if we don't understand that. You're a good shepherd. And so we ask that you would have your way with us. Make us to know you as you truly are. Help us by your Holy Spirit to believe your word and to live by it. We don't just want some ecstatic, overwhelming experience. We want you. So help us to tremble before you because we know you. Help us to be thrilled and undone by your love. Help us to fear you in a way that keeps us near you so that we would never turn away from you. Help us to live in a relationship with you according to your word and on your own terms. This would be the best gift for life in this world, and you love to give your children good gifts. So we ask for it in the name of your son. Amen.